Hello, world singers! My name is Brooke. And I'm Tyler. And this is Cosmere Cosmere Conversations. Welcome to another episode. Episode 18. Where we are bringing you all of the fan theories. I am super excited about this episode. We've been pimping it for a long time, really since we started talking about Oathbringer. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) And we've hit on a couple of these theories or incorporated a couple of these theories into previous conversations. Yeah, and some are theories that we've been seeing for a while on Reddit, um, but we also reached out to our listeners on Reddit and on Facebook, and we got a few new ones specifically from you guys, which we're going to talk about. Absolutely. I think that we're going to start with a theory that's been previously mentioned, but we just love it so much, and we think it's on the money. And has received kind of more in-text confirmation during Oathbringer. I feel like with Oathbringer, to me, this is like not even a theory anymore. It like has to be true. The only problem is that it has not been independently outside of text confirmed by Brandon. But there's so much evidence for it. I feel like you would have to be crazy to say that this is not real. It could be just one of those things where we see it and we want it to be true, and so we're picking, but in reality, it's not the case. However, I mean, fine, I'm, but we're going to give you guys all of the evidence, and, and then, then you can judge. Yeah, you, you can, can decide judge. for yourselves. Or if you are the type that goes to see Brandon at events, you could specifically ask about the music theory. I'm just putting that out into the universe. People at book signings or running into Brandon on the randoms, uh, <laughs> please ask about this music theory that we have mentioned before was posted by user Sildaris on Reddit before Oathbringer before Oath was Bringer. released. Yeah, man, give that dude a medal. Or yeah, lady. Or lady. I double-checked just to see the actual date. It was a week before Oathbringer was released, but do remember that the previews, the like first 40 oh, chapters were out. True, true. So they could have gone through that and seen a couple of the hints. Yeah. However, this person on Reddit, Sildaris, just really did a great job. And we're going to start by pulling just a quick couple of quotes from this user's Reddit post. So just as a reminder, the theory is that all forms of investiture on Rashar have a basis in rhythm slash music. Now, the most obvious example and most obvious tie-ins is with the Parshendi, who we know call themselves the listeners. What are they originally listening to? Originally the singers. Yes, originally the singers. And the singers originally in their mythology were singing songs, singing the songs of power and giving them the forms of power and knowledge. And we have the... Well, and we have ancient peoples that we have heard of called the Dawn Singers who spoke a language called the Dawn Chant. We know that the listeners in the modern setting of Rashar through our firsthand perspectives, both of Venli and her now deceased, to the best of our knowledge, sister Esh and I, that the listeners are incredibly in tune with what we'll call a global beat, a global Right, because source. it's not just that they are singing songs, they are attuning rhythms that are already there. So all of these songs, all of these rhythms are constantly pulsing in Rashar and the listeners slash singers are simply able to tune into the beats that are already there and sort of channel them through themselves. Very similar in a way to a radio where you're finding a station 
uh, tuning your radio, AM or FM, uh, to pick up what you want. And then once it's coming in loud and clear, then you can kind of broadcast it. So the listeners are able to tune in to different stations, whether that's war form or dull form or is it art form or is that the one they're looking for? Yeah, there is an art form, but remember, no matter what form they're in, they can still sing different songs. So you can be in war form or art form and be attuning the rhythm of the lost or yeah, whatever. Absolutely. Uh, I'd like how we just went with the opposite Opposite song. (laughs) (laughs) But the source of their forms is also kind of based around uh, this beat, this Do you think so, though? Well, I thought their form was more just contingent on the spren that they're bonded with. I believe that this theory is what connects all those different things. The spren, I also think, are connected to well, we music do know and rhythm. that in their tradition, the way that they bond with a desired spren is to go out into the storm. And a key part of it is that you have to attune the correct rhythm to attract this spren to bond with. So, yeah, I think this theory is very unifying. That's why it's so attractive. What we wanted to do is give some evidence from the text and kind of support the claims made by Sildaris and update them with new stuff from Oathbringer as well. So, Brooke, let's just go through. This is all coming from Sildaris just to start. Uh, Looking in Way of Kings all the way back to the beginning in chapter 4 where we have the first appearance of Syl when she is a kind of She's still not conscious, and she is not appearing as like a full honor spren to Kaladin. She's kind of in that in-between thing where she's like a playful wind spren, but like slightly weird, or Kaladin thinks it's a slightly weird wind spren. User Sildaris points out that in chapter four, quote, she began to step around him in the air, spinning occasionally, dancing to some unheard beat, end quote barely cognizant of her full self, but she's always dancing and moving to an unheard beat. And I think that is the an example of Spren attuning the ever-present rhythms in the same way that the listeners can. Yeah, I think there are a lot of smaller examples of um, things in that world being described in rhythmic terms, which we'll we'll see a little bit more of when we get into evidence from Oathbringer. Also in Way of Kings, uh, we hear something from Shalon that sort of reinforces this idea. Quote, However, she'd found a book the day before that had offered what seemed like a useful tip. It claimed that humming, of all things, could make soul casting more effective. End quote. So that's when Shalon is trying to figure out how to use her family's soul caster. But again, music sort of reinforcing or making a form of magic work. And in chapter 46, we have a vision that Kaladin has have of riding the storm. And in this quote, something happens that I think is really going to recur a lot We see it here early on, but I think it can be found in each and every book at multiple times. And that is that we see the physical manifestations of Spren humming, beating, vibrating in ways that if it was represented by sound, it would form some type of music or song. But instead, we are witnessing it as like a... Um, a flashing light or a th- kind of strobing light right, from, coming from a spren. In most cases, we're seeing this through the eyes of humans who, as we know, exactly. are not as attuned to As attuned, but rhythms. we will <laughs> see that maybe they are attuned in some way. So this is from uh, chapter 46, uh, Kaladin. Quote, something drew his attention, strange flashes of light. He blew toward them at the forefront of the storm. What were those lights? They came and burst, forming the strangest patterns, almost like physical things that he could reach out and touch. 
spherical bubbles of light that vibrated with spikes and troughs, end quote. Now, spikes and troughs could, that's how he's seen it in the physical realm, but if you saw that as music, right? I was going to say, music. Well, I mean, when scientists talk about uh, sound waveforms, they talk about spikes and troughs, so that's, you know, right in that jargon used in that um, field. So all of those things were presented by Sildaris. We want to give credit where credit is due, but then let's expand upon this. Yeah, let's add to it. Because no disrespect to Sildaris, but we are very nerdy, and we did <laughs> lots and lots of research. Yeah, it had a specific highlighter color when I was reading Oathbringer that I had just highlighted all of the music references. And we see another of these kind of points that keeps coming up over and over and over again and it's giving us the underlying hint that i feel makes this theory so attractive first presented by capsule the assassin slash ardent who befriends slash woos shallan in the form of cymatics brooke could you explain a little bit about what cymatics was from capsule's explanation yeah, so Capsule brings this dish of sand and demonstrates how when a specific sound is made, the sand rearranges itself into a pattern. Um, and his argument is that the Dawn cities, so the oldest cities in Rishar, um, I believe Kolinar Col- is one, um, Urethiru is one, right? Yes, Am I absolutely. Crazy? No, okay. no, no, you're 100% correct. Were created by some kind of divine cymatics, like a god had created a sound that made these cities on Rashar. And I kind of loved this description at first, because it's very in your face. It's very, it's not something that's like hidden in the text, obviously. Capsule is just talking about this as yeah. like his theory that he's presenting. And Shalon is a little bit dismissive. She's like, cool trick, but what's the point? And when he overlays the map of cities like Kolinar on top of his dish with sand that has now been changed based on the music, that is when the his argument to me really comes together. But also, when you now look back with this theory in mind that all investiture and possibly even like the significant livable aspects of Rashar may have been created through music. Yeah. And it ties together so well with other things in their culture. Like these cymatic patterns are symmetrical which we know that the Vorans revere symmetry. Um, So I just think in in terms of things like that, like in context of their larger culture, things that are really deeply ingrained and embedded into their lives, it makes so much sense. Absolutely. And then just music in general is often very symmetrical, playing on patterns and expectations. Yeah, pattern, definitely. Yeah. And you can get that kind of, you know, verse, chorus, verse, verse, chorus, like pattern right and then alterations to the pattern exactly and that's like what makes things more exciting but at its most basic level i think that music is really about like an artist or a group recognizing a pattern and then like repeating that pattern over and over obviously that's not very exciting for very long but at its most base level that's what i feel like music is And we can see both the base level patterns in the Stormlight Archive while also seeing some of the ways that people like play with it and change it and adjust it over time and maybe develop entire magic systems around it. (laughs) Another way that we see the music theory on Rashar is in the Rishadium, which we see, we see this in Oathbringer, I think, which was really exciting. The Rishadium are surrounded by music spren they attract music spren yeah and i found this 
incredibly supportive of the overall music theory. Well, yeah, like I think that's why they are so sentient. That is, we have to have some type of explanation for the increased sentience or the increased abilities of Reishadium. We already know that some creatures, like the Great Shells, can do, can kind of exist even though they shouldn't based on like the physics of Rashar and the description has been it's because of the gem heart uh inside of them and the don't they bond well yeah I was gonna say like last week we talked about the Lux Bren. yeah they bond that Lux Bren, right yeah which are they sort of take away some of the burden of gravity so that these animals are able to grow much bigger than they should be able to without crushing themselves with their own weight so that aspect is kind of confirmed about animals on Rashar cooperating, forming a relationship with certain types of spren to make them do incredible things. It would fit that Rishadium have to have some type of spren that they are also partnered up with. And in Oathbringer, we discover that that is music spren. Yeah, and I just have so many questions now. Like, what does that mean? Because I feel like music spren, if... This whole world is based on like music and vibration. Then music spread must be very important on Rashar. And what does it mean that the Rishadium are one of the only times in these three books that we've even seen music spread on Rashar? Yeah, it's not. And they play music all the time. They talk about being at, you know, the different parties and whatnot and all the yeah, and we ladies see, playing in the background and stuff. Right, and we see creation spren in those not instances. not necessarily music spren. Exactly. I find that is like a big question of like, why does playing a musical piece create creation spren, but does not attract music spren? Obviously, it probably does. In Well, because even creation spren, you have to be... Very, Real good. Exactly. You have to be really skillful in order to attract them. So maybe it's just that the humans like aren't skillful enough. But then like, I don't know, Rishadium, they're like fancy horses. Like what do they have to do with music? I think this might come down to... Okay, so stay with me, people. Going off early. You know how elephants can recognize uh sounds over many miles through their feet yeah they use it to communicate mm-hmm. with like kind of a deep hum yeah that they can signifies. feel the vibrations in the ground okay so i just know that about elephants in our universe maybe in the risharian universe early rishadium before they had bonded you know they're kind of regular but cool horses uh they started to maybe communicate in that way or like recognize the thrum and pattern of Mm -hmm. their stampeding the hooves kind of walking together kind of makes a musical sound and then everybody working together kind of makes a musical sound well and i think even on earth horses do use more watered down version of like what elephants do they don't obviously they're feet are not as big as elephants feet so i don't know if they get the same amount of vibration but i think they do do that to some extent so it could be that the rishadium on rishar are doing that and then as sort of an extension of that also feel the pulse of rishar itself yeah so that that would kind of make sense as if you're you developed as an animal to kind of do that type of communication well, then, just like with a radio, you can sometimes get stations that you weren't necessarily <laughs> trying to or from really far away. Yeah. And they might have picked up, attuned a some of the rhythms of Rashar. Cool. That's my theory on what happened to the early Rishadium. I like it. We already talked about Syl's relationship to music. Pattern, obviously, is always described as humming. And as we just spoke about, music is pattern itself so that is confirmed there we have a recognition from kaladin when he 
kind of gets lost in thought while staring at one of the heating Fabrials. He's like looking at it, the gem really intensely and going over his thoughts as Kaladin is one to do. But he starts recognizing that the Stormlight and I, and I believe Spren, I forget if it's uh, Flame Spren or some other type of Spren that is captured inside of the Fabrial, it's in motion. It is... Uh, vibrating to a rhythm so i always thought i thought that that he describes it as like seeing the storm in the gemstone i don't remember him describing it as like a rhythm at all of course in way of kings hoyd gives kaladin a flute and that could possibly be hoyd trying to like give some kind of tool to enhance the surge binding that Kaladin is just beginning to discover. Venli in Oathbringer specifically remarks, I believe on a couple of occasions, that humans that she's observing and watching, also in the flashbacks to the party that Gavilar has, she's observing the humans moving or cheering out two different rhythms that they don't understand and they don't recognize exist, but then they're moving to the rhythm of uh, irritation or they yell out an exclamation right on beat with the rhythm of joy. Right, so that's a moment when she is... Uh, sort of recognizing, we would say recognizing the humanity, obviously they're humans, but recognizing something in the humans that, you know, most listeners are like, ugh, those humans, they don't know anything about our songs. Have no beats, have no songs, they are evil. They're so dumb and silent. And Venley has this moment of like, you know, I don't know if they're quite as songless as we think they are because every once in a while they do something that just syncs right up with the rhythms and i think this is not normal for humans who we know because of oathbringer hashtag all spoilers we know that the humans are from ashen and they traveled at some point to well rishar. we don't know that they're from ashen we, we know, know that, that they're not lived. native to rishar very good we know i don't think that the humans necessarily could ever hear the beats i think it's a learn skill basically well that's what i was gonna say i wonder if since the humans have been on rishar for quite some time now if they have began to adapt yes, that's what and i think gotten those skills but i will also say that we know that both horn eaters and herdasians are descendants of human singer slash parchment, whatever you want to call them, uh, relationships from way back in the day. So there are at least two races of quote unquote humans on Rishar who have listener blood, who are more attuned to the songs. And I find just that aspect that there are quote unquote humans who are seen as kind of weird by the Alethi humans, and maybe even the Thalans as well. The other humans... Yeah, sort of the the Vorin kingdoms. Yes, the Vorin kingdoms all kind of look down on both Herdasians and Horn Eaters. And I find the incorporation of race into that looking down on them to not just have some ties back into our own universe... But to be something that you can really imagine happening in the past. Like, we have these humans who, what we know right now, kind of landed in Shinovar, set up, and were given that territory. And then at some point started expanding outwards. But maybe not all that expansion was well, with the sword. I you mean, know? no, we know that they had a good relationship with the Parshendi initially because the parshendi say like we took them in like yeah for everything sure. was cool and then something obviously goes wrong and there's a lot of violence yeah, and genocide but there and was, stuff i think enough 
you know, good will and good feeling, good relationship between the two groups that you would have people, you know, fraternizing together. Yeah. And- Eventually, like you have some real friendly humans who are like, hey, you're a totally sexy parchment or a totally sexy singer. Uh, let's go off into the peaks and find ourselves a nice little hot tub, a hot spring, <laughs> build a whole community. And that's the horn eaters. Basically, we don't know how many people obviously went up and did their thing but we can but, kind of I mean, assume that that's what that, happened yeah, yeah now you have an entire race of people and then when you think like okay we have horn eaters like rock who have come down to the mainland i'm sure there are you know others who have come down stayed had families with you know an alethi person or whatever so it could be that things like that are sort of leaking that rhythm sensitivity into the human race and then who are the two people that we see most closely connected to spren well rock can see sill right and that hints at like all right rock is obviously not a spren but he is somehow connected enough to the cognitive realm to see and worship sill i think that's because Horn Eaters and Herdazians on the other side, because uh, Lopin is the first one to get his Stormlight powers after Kaladin. I think that that's a hint that those two races, because of their genetic mixing, are more in tune with the rhythms. Let's move on, because there are a couple of quotes that we want to pull that really start to back up this music theory. We've already talked about the unmade specifically i believe that was episode 13 the thrill is almost always especially in oathbringer described as being a pulse a rhythm um many different forms of like musical descriptors <laughs> yeah it sounds like the drum beats of wars like yeah pulsating in dalinar's ears just in like or... as many ways as possible the thrill is described as music <laughs> and that's really what i think of it as we in the real world obviously we have people in the military that used to literally like beat drums uh to either psych you up for war or change directions during war uh but i feel like the thrill is that drum beat that you can't turn off that that starts pounding more and more while also giving you a little bit of a endurance boost and maybe some physical or uh, mental abilities in a very slight way to like help with battle but mainly it's just that underlying like drum beat of war like you will be psyched up you will get after this like it's the time to fight it's building up your adrenaline and testosterone and all that stuff through a pulse But we also have, in Oathbringer specifically, another one of the unmade mentioned the Revel, or do you remember the... Ashert Marn? Nice. Beautiful. But that is, has control over Kolinar. When our gang arrives, Shallan is trying to go up and open up the Oathgate or see what's going on, explore. And she starts feeling the powers of the Revel... Where she says, quote, the voices in her head combine from whispers to a kind of surging rhythm, a thumping of impressions, followed by a pause, followed by another surge, almost like, end quote. It cuts off and goes immediately to something happening, but she, we assume, is about to say almost like a song or music or. <laughs> and so the revel is. The same type of thing that we just described with the thrill, a pulse, an underlying beat that you can't turn off, but instead of... I mean, it's kind of like um, rave music. Yeah, 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 Where it's just like a really consistent beat that you can, like, your mind kind of latches onto the beat and then everything else just fades away. Absolutely. I think that's a great description for, like, what the revel was doing to people because it's not building you up to fight, maybe a little the other f word uh (laughs) but it's building you up to kind of dance and and party and kind of get in that mindset of extravagance or uh in the way we see it in oathbringer is like to the extreme yeah but at, at its most basic level yeah i think that like a dance party rave music 
that vibe. It's like the ultimate loss of inhibitions. Through music. Right. That's cool. Just the idea that like that does happen. Like you go go out on a dance floor and there could be. You can just like lose yourself and you're just like feeling the beat. You can dance all night. A lot of people do, you know, drugs or alcohol and all that type of stuff to help with the inhibition. Right. But it's totally possible to just go out and do it with music only. Yeah, for sure. Especially when you have a crowd. I mean, it's. Yeah a pretty normal experience we have here on earth and so i see it in the rebel a lot it really reminds me of uh i was in barcelona once and i got up very early in the morning to catch a really really early flight so it was like three or four o'clock in the morning i go outside of my hostel and i'm like what the heck is that noise and there's just this like you could literally hear the dance clubs in Barcelona all over the city. Like you could literally feel the rhythm of the music everywhere. It was like a heartbeat of the city. It was crazy. And isn't that how the like vision exactly, yeah. of Shalon, uh, when she actually describes it, she described it as like a beating heart. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. It's called the heart of the revel. And there it's like go. this black, disgusting heart. I'm just saying it's like for realsies. It actually exists out there <laughs> for the people in Barcelona. Apparently yeah. nowhere else gets Barcelona. to have <laughs> Very beautiful. Um, and then we also have Wit. When he is in Colinar telling his story of the moon baby, um, which is sort of a parable describing the beginning of the Natan people. Quote, Though just before she set, Misham heard a song. It was a song of laughter, of beauty. A song Misham had never heard. End quote. And that is like the description of the moon hearing like the life song of the baby that has been created. Like adding its tiny little rhythm to the rhythm of the world. Which is a very nice sentiment. So nice. And just more evidence. Let's keep going down the list. High Storm specifically. Quote, the storm was a primal dance, an ancient song, an eternal battle that had raged since Rashar was new. End quote. I mean, the storm as another primal force on Rashar. I know we're talking about music theory, but my question is, how does Stormlight fit into music? Because Stormlight is the source of investiture, but it's light, not sound. Light and sound are the same thing. What? I think that light and sound both operate. I mean, they both operate on wavelengths. Okay, so if they're both operating on wavelengths, we know that they are different on like a physical level you have photons and stuff like that but you could look at it as a spectrum where light waveforms are on one side of the spectrum where it's waving so fast that it (laughs) is just becoming light and then somewhere in the middle of the spectrum you have like the sound waveforms but you could see it as like Mm. one all a long continuum. Well, what I'm thinking is, what if... No, I guess that maybe this doesn't work, but here's my thought anyway. What if on their original planet, the humans had light magic and they brought it to Rishar when they came? And so they like came to Music Planet bringing light magic and like now there's both on Rishar. That is a pretty good idea. I really like it when it comes to Shalon because she can both create light weaving, but she can right. also create sound weaving. Yeah, and when you look at the description of her surges, it says that it gives uh, control over various waveforms. And so, at least in terms of that surge, it is a spectrum, a continuum right. where light is on one side and sound is part of that spectrum yeah. that Shalon can manipulate. We don't know what else, but I would also assume that void light might be on that spectrum yeah. too. Yeah, ooh, yeah. Good call, good call. But I don't know because I don't know if we are aware as readers of what exactly Stormlight is. 
at its most basic level. A source yeah. of investiture, yes. So is it like, I don't know, a soup of spiritual energy that like you kind of dunked in and bring back to the physical world? That's kind of what I thought. Uh, but I don't 100% know. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up as a thought. So we already mentioned that Kolinar is one of the cities that Capsule described as being possibly created by somatics. But in Oathbringer, we also have a couple of quotes as well. Quote, the city's heartbeat was deep within these stones, end quote. And a little bit later, when Kaladin arrives with his gang, we get this line, quote, this quarter cut through the stone reminded Kaladin of the strata of Erythiru, end quote. And I know I still have questions on what this strata is, but do you want to talk about what you think of the strata? So what I believe of the strata that is originally really mentioned in Urethiru, but then is secondarily mentioned in Kolinar, is that if we take Capsule's theory as accurate of these places of greatness being built by some type of Godlike being the shards themselves who are creating things through music, through sound, then the strata represent different waveforms of creation. It's almost like if you can imagine a sound coming at you in its waveform, if that sound continued to hit like the wall and then shaped the wall with the sound and like left behind uh, the remnants or the evidence of what the sound was in the wall itself, in the stone itself. That's what I think is going on, but this is just mentioned a bunch of times that like there's strata all over Erythiru, and apparently Kaladin thinks it's similar in Kolinar. Yeah, and it's definitely significant in some way. I'm sure we'll we'll hear more about it as we go through the Cosmia. One other thing about my theory in Erythiru is that Shallan is constantly mentioned as the person who has no trouble navigating multiple times around Erythiru. She's going up, down, even though it's really confusing. Everybody else is getting lost, especially Adolin, who's normally traveling with Shallan. I think the reason she can navigate is because she is a woman who can read the woman's script, and Adolin is a man who has no idea how to read. Shallan is also an artist... And someone who is practicing music, although she's better at drawing. Uh, but I think that the one of the major reasons I didn't get any confirmation from other women having less trouble getting lost than men. But like any time that Shalon, she's with Bridge Four, she's with Kaladin, she's walking around with Adolin, she has no trouble navigating, and all the men do. And I think this is because this is we haven't mentioned this yet in the podcast, but for those in the know. The women's script is designed to mimic the waveform of the actual sounds being pronounced. So women's script is waveform. It's a, a type of waveform. It's so amazing. And we're going to go into that in just a moment. But Shalon can read that as a woman, which in my mind would make it easier to understand the strata if it was also a type of waveform that was carved into the stone. I always thought it was just having to do with like her being a light weaver. I think that makes her more sensitive because she can see the waveform even easier than a general woman. Because she describes it as uh, like a color change and she's like, don't you see it? And everyone's like, what are you talking about? This is like all the same color. But exactly. Everybody else sees it all as one color. She is not perceiving color she's perceiving sound she's mm, perceiving maybe the sound. that's what i think yeah i think she's perceiving the sound differences that like created the walls oh obviously this one is going upwards because the sound that created a tunnel that goes upwards is slightly different right, from the sound right. that creates a tunnel that's going downwards so she had no problems yeah. navigating because she was just interpreting the strata as she would interpret mm-hmm. reading the woman's script so cool. Cool, so cool theory. Uh, yeah, super excited to talk about the women's script in a little bit. 
Let's do that now. Let's you want to go there? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So apparently this was decrypted quite a while ago, actually, um, by a user by the name of Hare KK. And this person did an amazing feat of cryptography um, using a couple of the in-book illustrations that have some text on them and deciphered the women's script. Uh, And I'll read a few quotes from Hara KK uh, in relation to this language. It's super amazing. I just want to say real quick that we know this specific part is going to be something that would be assisted by visuals uh, just because we're talking about a written language. So if you check the show notes, there should be some direct links to Harakeke's work, uh, as well as some photos of Brooks notepads, which <laughs> have uh, translated women's script as well. You can also, if you're not in the car or anything, you can flip your uh, Oathbringer to the very end where there is the Katek by Yasna for Shalon's uh, wedding. And that's a good example of the women's script. So... The graphemes of the language, which are the written components, essentially, uh, Harakeke says, seem to be systematically derived from the sound properties of their corresponding phonemes. So phoneme would be the thing that you actually say out of your mouth. So basically, what you write is a direct correspondent to the thing that is coming out of your mouth. Which, when you start to think about it, is what all language should have done. Yeah. If anyone out there is familiar with IPA, the International Phonetic Alphabet, this is somewhat similar to that. It's the best version we have, but it's still not as cool as the women's script. Definitely not as cool, because the women's script is actually a depiction of the sound form, whereas IPA is still an arbitrary symbol that we have chosen to represent a specific sound. This language has been designed so specifically that each grapheme is the size and shape reflects the location in the mouth where you are producing the sound. So uh, size as well as shape. Shape is going to be, they have straight lines for vowels. Uh, Left and right sort of like arrowy shapes are alveolar consonants. That means that your tongue is on the ridge right behind your teeth. Diamond shapes are bilabial consonants, means you use both of your lips. So things like b and and then what Hara KK calls fancies, um, which are just sort of these like wing sort of shapes, uh, are depicting velar consonants. And essentially, like if you looked at our audio recording of our podcast right now, it looks basically like the women's script would look as you're writing it out. That is probably the area where most people can like quickly see visually uh, what we're talking about is if you look at the actual waveform, I think like SoundCloud offers you a waveform of songs and stuff like that. Oh, too. yeah, yeah. Good point. Uh, and I see it all the time. It was so interesting when Brooke described this to me because I had a moment when I was like, oh, yeah, I can kind of do that. Not perfectly. But for example, when I'm editing our audio podcasts, I take out or try to take out a lot of the ums and lights (laughs) and filler words like that. It has become something that I do so often that in the waveform, I can see what Brooks ums look like. (laughs) And it's just something that you pick up relatively quickly about like, oh, that's going to cause a problem or I need to edit that out or that's an um. I can't do it with every single word, obviously, but basically that's what we're saying happens with the women's script is that you can read the waveform yeah definitely and then they have three different heights so sort of tall medium and short uh which is all related to breath control or the amount of stress that is typically put on the sound so sounds or letters that tend to have greater stress 
are depicted as taller lines uh, in the script. And then they do have uh, a diacritic of a hash mark, which is used to differentiate between different sounds uh, within the same group. So, you know, between all of the alveolar consonants, you add a hash mark to differentiate. And then initially there is a height line that is drawn to establish the height limits of the following composition. So again, talking about a written language is not going to convey it as much. Uh, If you have a moment and you are not in any type of dangerous circumstance, highly recommend you check out the show notes for some work done by both user Hari KK and our favorite user, Brooke. (laughs) And just like props to Brandon and the person who designed this language because it's incredible. The simplicity and yet complexity of creating a new language based around the waveforms of the sounds that people are making is very, very interesting. I don't think that there there is a lot of examples of stuff like this just in the world. I think everybody's famous fallback is to be like, oh, well, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien was a master linguist, a professor of linguistics, and he incorporated real languages into his work uh, and languages that he created, and everything was correct and accurate, and you can break it down and learn how to speak Elvish, and the Elvish script is real and has, like, you know, it's fully functional language. I don't know if Brandon is going to explore this more but I do think it is great evidence of the importance of music on Rashar. So tying it back into the overall music theory. I mean, there are there are hints and facts and relevant information given to us in the women's script, like on top of Shalon's notes and other images that we see in the books. Like they they have relevant information if you can decipher the script. Same with uh, like an Oathbringer, the Thalen language is depicted. So I know Hara KK was working on uh, decrypting that as well as the glyphs, um, the Alethi glyphs. So I know that many users, especially if you're on a Kindle uh, or another type of digital readout, may not have on their first read through had great access to the pictures and images other than seeing like, Oh yeah, that's a cool, you know, great shell or something like that. I really think that it is valuable to check out the high quality versions of those artwork pieces on uh, Brandon's website or it might be the tour website. It's usually on the cover mine too. Excellent. Are we good? Um, yeah, I think we've exhausted the music theory. It's only been close to an hour uh, on <laughs> just the music theory. Whoops. So what we wanted to do was really explore the music theory, really give all the possible evidence for that, because we think this is more than a theory. Like, or yeah. In the actual correct scientific way, Sildaris presented a hypothesis, and we are giving so much evidence that we think this is now a theory like the theory of gravity like gravity exists people so does the music (laughs) Uh, so thank you for the hypothesis Sildaris and we think this is now ready to become a full-fledged canon theory yes but we're not Brandon so again people ask him Brandon if you're listening please send us an email oh Brandon's a great friend of the pod we hang out on the reg (laughs) <laughs> but that's regular for non-English speakers slash non-lame people. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to some theories, both large and small, that were presented by some of our fans and presented by people generally on Reddit or Facebook. We are going to close out this episode with just a couple of fan theories, talk about them a little bit. And then we're going to do a part two episode where we 
really explore more fan theories. Yeah, we'll explore some of the more in-depth ones. On our next episode. Yes, correct. But first, let's talk about some of the things that after Oathbringer, people felt really confident about. And first we'll go to user Brianne Brash. Basic theory is that Odium is not the big bad of the Cosmere. In fact, it is autonomy. Previously, we've floated the idea that autonomy and Odium were working together, but we had presented it as Odium is the big bad and autonomy is working for Odium, uh, and possibly as the kind of red cloud that is attacking Scadrio specifically. Brianne Brash has flipped that theory on, or hypothesis, on its head where autonomy is actually the one that is most powerful or most in charge. And she, the user had the name Brianne, but I don't know what that is in different languages. I'm just thinking Brienne from Game of Thrones. Uh, but <laughs> this user neither male nor female, is going to say that, one, in most Sanderson books, the villain that is most apparent and most upfront is not generally the villain at the end. We see this multiple times with kind of how the Lord Ruler, not yeah, the big bad. But I feel like Ruin is always the bad, you know? Well, Ruin is a bad character for Scadrial, but then it becomes apparent by Mistborn Era 2 that there is something, we think it's autonomy, that's attacking Scadrial that maybe Ruin and Preservation, because they weaken themselves to create mm. humanity, maybe they couldn't have dealt with at all. Like, they would have just got yeah. wiped out, and it's only because Harmony's there that there's some resistance. Odium, from Brienne's Brash's perspective was just presented very early as the big bad. Like Stormlight, we know five parts with these characters in the basically relative same timeline. Then there's going to be some time gap. Don't know exactly how long it's going to be. Uh, and then another five books to make Stormlight Archive in total 10 books. We got a lot of Odium in book three. I mean, I could see Odium not being the villain all the way through all ten books, but I think at least for these the first, first five, five yeah. Odium is. Um, I could see that, but I could also, just from the description of Odium himself, for his own description, and what we know now is that he's not like evil and hatred. He's all passion. Right, and that is something that causes me to think that he could be turned away from evil um, and sort of re-embraced as passion and not odium. Yeah. So I could see I could see that turnabout happening. Definitely. And I would say the reason I could see autonomy being a little bit worse is because, for example, if Endgame is to reunite all of the shards, mm-hmm. Autonomy the is be obviously yeah, not going to want to be reunited because it wants to be by itself. And it, like, I don't know. I mean, Autonomy obviously is a good thing. We want people to have, like, bodily autonomy and all of that good stuff. But I think in this sense, Autonomy is creating disharmony because of a lack of a desire to like compromise and like be together and everybody be friends yeah and again it it comes back down to what we've mentioned multiple times adenalsium had all of these things working together you as a human being have all of these things working together autonomy is separate from everything else that gives it context exactly so now it's autonomy without context and so it is becoming like the worst version of what autonomy could be i think that we will really discover more about the relationship between odium and autonomy but i think it's going to happen with misborn as much as it will with 
sure. uh, Stormlight. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that it's important to keep both of those ideas. Now, autonomy, just f- for records, was once on Taldane, but we think has left. Yes, I'm pretty sure that's right. Okay. So Brooke and I were just having a off-mic conversation about where autonomy was from. Uh, we were debating between Taldane and Threnody. I mentioned that it has to be Taldane because the people in White Sand have titles that they give each other uh, that are all based around and have the end suffix of trell. So it's like mass trell, less trell, all these different things that go along with trell. And we have previously seen trell most apparent on Scadriel, who we believe is being attacked by autonomy. So the, those things would line up perfectly if autonomy was at one point based on Taldane. I think that's so amazing. Finally, like the link between Trell and autonomy. Ah, way to go. So proud of you. I am not claiming credit for that. Someone else smarter than me said that first. Well, great job, team. Team Cosmere fans. There you go. Love it. (laughs) Hashtag Cosmere fandom, still best fandom. Going on to our next fan theory. We have user Stormlight Hero 5 who presents a theory that I really like. Yeah, this is a good one. More animals and giving us some descriptions. So, the basic theory is that the fish found in the Pure Lake are magical in the same way that we have seen from the AVR, which is like the magic bird from First of the Sun, and. I think, from the Larkin that was gifted, or I guess earned, uh, by, what's her name? Risen? Risen. Risen when she visited the Reshi Isles. So, User Stormlight Hero points out that Vasher, coming through Nightblood, but Vasher said that when they visited the Pure Lake, Vasher remarked that the fish there were magical. Well, and I think the residents of the Pure Lake have some, we have seen yes. believe that. Yeah. We also know that Marais, kind of collector of Cosmere significant artifacts and uh, wildlife, uh, brought a AVR to Rishar. I didn't remember this. Do you remember? So we know that Marais, what did that person say? Is Marais's strange chicken invested? There you go. Excellent question. Because remember. As we've talked about, all birds are chickens. On Rashar. But on First of the Sun, the AVR uh, are birds, a certain species that is grown in a certain area where they eat magical worms. Not all the birds on First of the Sun are magical. Only the ones that eat the magical worms are. So either Marais traveled to First of the Sun and got a like full-grown AVR and brought it back as like a pet or, you know, zoo type of thing, or he, and I find this slightly more likely, just stay with me, he got the worms like shipped to him or because we have this economy going on that's in the background of the Cosmere so I I just am always imagining things but like he got the worms and then with a Risharian bird fed the worms which made it magical interesting I don't know because we haven't got a bunch of description about this bird that Marais has so we don't know if it's you know likely that it is from First of the Sun or if it's just a kind of semi-normal Risharian bird. Well, especially because every time we see a bird on Rishar, it's through the eyes of people for whom birds are not normal anyway. So to them, all birds are weird. So you're like, okay, well, I can't tell if this is actually weird or (laughs) just regular weird. So I like this idea for two reasons. Uh, One, we have the significance of other animals becoming semi-invested or incorporating uh, magic into their existence. So that kind of plays back in with the Rishadium we were talking about earlier. 
But I think that this is also giving us a hint about how maybe pre-humans or even pre-shattering Rashar might have worked. There might have been animal magic cooperation, animal mm. spren cooperation going on even earlier than necessarily the shards. Sure. Yeah. I definitely think that's possible. It's. I think it's up in the air. We don't have any hard confirmation. It's a cool thing to think about, though. Mm-hmm. So next we have our theory from Denko Sensei regarding Chiri Chiri. So Chiri Chiri is, as we just mentioned, the Larkin that Risen gets from the Reshi Isles. And we see Chiri Chiri in Oathbringer grow. <laughs> um, and so this user, Denko Sensei, has put forward the idea that Chiri Chiri is a baby dragon because of the way it's described as, quote, a creature that looked like a Kremlin, but with wings that folded along the back, end quote. Now, immediately, Denko Sensei starts explaining where this description of looking like a Kremlin, but with wings that folded along the back, comes from a person who would not have any reference about what a dragon looks like. They would have reference for what Kremlins look like. And the argument that Denko Sensei made was, they are saying it looks like a Kremlin, but what we know about all Kremlins is that they have a hard uh, carapace on the outside to protect themselves from the storms. Dragon scales could appear somewhat similar. Even though inside a dragon is going to be very different than like an insect like kind of Kremlin, they don't know that. They just see the outside and they're like, cool, he's got some scales like a Kremlin. Right. But the way that Chiri Chiri is described, like they say, with wings folding on the back rather than sort of like a beetle where they're protected by the carapace definitely brings to mind something like a dragon or even a different kind of insect that sort of folds their wings on the back like that. So we'll put this in the show notes, but there is also a picture of an axe hound. Now, again, Risen remarks that Chiri Chiri's head kind of looks like an axe hound, and we have an image of what axe hounds look like. The head itself does have more of, I think, like an insecty vibe than necessarily a traditional dragon, but it's also not super far away from, you know, insect, reptilian. There's kind of a variation there that could be a little bit of a crossover. Yeah, and I think you could imagine, like, if you imagine an axe-hound head with, like, the wings along the back, like, you could definitely see that being a dragon. Now, we have a later word of Brandon that asks specifically, is Chiri Chiri a dragon in the same way that we have seen or at least speculated that there are other dragons in the Cosmere, namely Frost, uh, but we know that there are dragons in the Cosmere and someone just straight up asked, Brandon, is Chiri Chiri one of those types of dragons? And he gives kind of an answer that is definitely saying no. Chiri Chiri is not one of those types of dragons, but he leaves open the idea that it is some type of draconian species, some type of maybe a mix between a dragon and a native Rosharian creature. So it could be kind of like a Axehound Kremlin, but mixed also with a dragon as well. Uh, we know that these Larkins, as they're called, are super rare and mystical and specifically the power that the larkin has is an ability to feed off of stormlight yeah which is what we see in oathbringer cheery cheery like starts out as a little baby and then is like and who else has that ability to feed off of stormlight lift I find this very interesting. (laughs) Well, because, okay, it all ties together because Larkins are native to Amia and Amians are said to be uh, part spren or like they exist partially in the cognitive realm as we have suspected uh, Lyft does as well. Do you think there's something with 
creatures like created by cultivation where maybe like her early attempts were I'm going to make creatures that are somewhat in the cognitive realm, you know, partially in the cognitive realm. And so she makes Amians, she makes Larkins. Um, I'm just like speculating now. I don't know. I don't know if it has anything to do with cultivation, but I definitely think there's something about Amia geographically, possibly, that it is a place where the barriers between realms are weaker. Yes. Because we know that soul casters come out of Amia. Amians themselves obviously have weird, crazy, mystical powers. Larkins being from Amia. Um, I don't know why Amia would have been scourged, but there's something there. There's definitely something there, and it's a big mystery that we have yet to crack about what is specifically going on in Amia. So some fun speculation about many of the different animals, our overarching music theory heavily described, and the foray into linguistics and the women's script. I feel like this has been a really fun episode, and I'm super excited to talk about more fan theories next week. So Hit us up with your fan theories. Yeah, if you have any ideas on the theories that we discussed today or new theories, please hit us up on Reddit and Facebook. And until next time, life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. Mm